Okay, we're in Esther. We're finishing up chapter 4 this morning, and we'll be getting into chapter 5. So let's open with a word of prayer. Father God, we do thank you so much for this book and uh, the things we're learning from it about how you work in this world, how you take care of those who are your own, how you administer uh, your justice. And, uh, and we'll see that as we, we go through these next couple chapters, Lord. And we just pray that as we go through this, that we'll uh, learn uh, more about our Savior, about our Father in heaven, um, that we can grow in our relationship with you uh, through this, and that you'll help us to apply that in our lives. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, we, this morning we will go ahead and read chapter 5. Chapter 5 of Esther. <clears throat> we read chapter 4 last time. and uh, So let's read chapter 5. On the third day, Esther put on her royal robes and stood in the inner court of the king's palace in front of the old king's quarters while the king was sitting on his royal throne inside the throne room opposite the entrance to the palace. When he saw Queen Esther standing in the court, he was pleased with her and held out, her, held out to her the scepter, the golden scepter that was in his hand. So Esther approached and touched the tip of the scepter. Then the king said to her, What is troubling you, Queen Esther? And what is your request? Even to half of the kingdom it shall be given to you. If it pleases the king, replied Esther, let the king, together with Haman, come today, come today to a banquet I have prepared for him. Verse 5. Verse 5. The king said, hurry and get payment so we can do as Esther has requested. So the king and Haman went to the banquet Esther had prepared. As they were drinking wine, the king again asked Esther, now what is your petition? I will, it will be given to you, and what is your request? Even up to half the kingdom, it will be granted. Then Esther answered, my wish and my request is, if I have found favor in the sight of the king, and if it please the king, to grant my wish and fulfill my request, let the king and Haman come to the feast that I shall prepare for them, and, I, and tomorrow I will be, do as the king asked, has said. Then Haman went out that day, glad and pleased to part, but when Haman saw Mordecai in the king's gate, and that he did not stand up or tremble before him, Haman was filled with anger against Yeah, pass, okay. 10. Haman controlled himself, however, went to his house and sent for his friends and his wife, Zeresh. And Haman recounted to them the splendor of his riches, the number of his sons, all the promotions with which the king had honored him, and how he had advanced him above the officials and the servants of the king. Verse 12. And that's not all, Haman added. I'm the only person that Queen Esther invited for company came to the banquet she gave. And she has invited me along with the king tomorrow. Yet all of this does not satisfy me every time I see Mordecai the Jew sitting at the king's gate. His wife Zeresh and all of his friends said to him, Have a pole set up, reaching to a height of 50 cubits, and ask the king in the morning to have Mordecai unveiled on it. Then go with the king to the banquet and enjoy yourself. This suggestion delighted Haman, and he had the pole set up. Okay. 
So last uh, week we did go through uh, chapter 4, and what we saw was the edict to annihilate the Jews had been sent out. Uh, we saw Mordecai with sackcloth and ashes, and he went up to the king's gate but did not enter, because that was a violation of the law to go into the palace in sackcloth and ashes. <coughs> Esther heard that he was there and, and grieving and mourning. And so, remember, she sent him some clothes. I think the idea was that he could come inside and then she could talk to him and find out what the problem was. And he refused those. So she sent Mathak, who was uh, one of the king's eunuchs, to be the messenger. We'll find out from Mordecai what the problem was. And so Mordecai tells him the whole story. Uh, he, he even knows about the 10,000 talents that Haman is going to pay for the privilege of exterminating the Jews. Um, he has a copy of the edict with him, which he gives to Hathak to take to uh, Esther. And he urges her to uh, intervene on behalf of the Jews uh, to intercede for them. He tells Hathak, you know, really urge her to do this. Um, so Hathat goes to Esther and she says well you know the problem here is you know you can't just walk in on the king's in his throne room that's a capital offense you have to be invited in and the king hasn't asked me to come to see him for over a month or so and you know if I just walk in I could be put to death for that and so Hathat takes that message back to Mordecai, so he's our go-between. Um, and Mordecai says, you know, you're, don't, don't expect to um, escape the, the, the annihilation. You're a Jew, and the, the law says that you also will be executed. So uh, this is that place where he says, you know, you may... Going blank on it, but this may be why you're this basically this this may be why you're in this position. You know, this might be why you're queen is so that you can intercede for the Jews, and uh, you need to do this. And so uh, <coughs> Esther at this time basically makes up her mind that yes, um, I'm going to do it. But then she needs. A support group, and that's what we're going to look at this morning to finish up the chapter. So, starting at verse 15, chapter 4, verse 15, and looking through the end of the ch chapter 4, it says, Then Esther told them to reply to Mordecai, Go assemble all the Jews who found in Susa and fast for me. Do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. I and my maidens also will fast in the same way, and thus I will go into the king which is not according to the law, and if I perish, I perish. So Mordecai went away and did just as Esther had commanded him. So she decides to risk her life to ask Ahasuerus to spare the Jews, but she needs a support group. So um, she tells Mordecai, gather all the Jews in the city, have them fast for three days. Now this is not... the the mourning and grieving that they had been doing. It's not grief, it's fasting. And the purpose of fasting is to pray to God. Now, 
just in keeping with the whole book, it doesn't mention prayer, it doesn't mention God, but we know why they're fasting, um, and they know why they're fasting. Um, and specifically, you know, she says, don't go with, you know, no food, no drink for three days or nights, um, which is, you know, uh, in Islam, there's the Ramadan, I think is a fast during the day. So when the sun goes down, then they can eat. You know, so it's just a daytime fast. This one's a day and night fast. Um, Let's look at an, an example of, of being called to fast for prayer. Let's look at Joel. <coughs> Daniel, Hosea, Joel. Joel chapter 1. So we have a couple passages in Joel that give examples of fasting for this similar purpose. Uh, Joel chapter 1, someone like to read verses 14 and 15 for us. Consecrate a fast. Proclaim a solemn assembly. Gather the elders and all the inhabitants of the land to the house of the Lord your God and cry out to the Lord God. Also 15. Alas, for the day, when the day of the Lord is near, and it will come as destruction from the Almighty. Okay, so there's... Uh, Joel is set talking, I think this is during the days of Hezekiah before uh, Nebuchadnezzar comes and des destroys Jerusalem. But he's telling them, go and fast. Why? So they can cry out to the Lord. There is a danger on the horizon. Go and cry out to the Lord for his mercy. And let's turn to chapter 2. And would someone like to read verses 15 through 17 here? Okay, so this is that it begins, blow a trumpet in Zion, that's kind of a famous saying. Uh, the priests were the ones who blew trumpets to announce uh, holy days and things, and so he's there to call the people and to have a fast. And so they're to uh, cry out to the Lord, and um, again, so, you know, it says, spare thy people, O Lord, because again, there's disaster coming. So that's the same thing we have back here in Esther. But again, it, it does not mention the prayer or God. It just says, have a fast. Um, but we Is that know. Three day typical? I don't know. Because you live three minutes without air, you have three, water, three days without water. So you're pushing that. Yeah. If you don't it, drink, I mean, you're putting, starting to go. Yeah, we'll see exactly how long the fast lasts when we get to the. Chapter 5, verse 1. Well, this one made me think about nursing mothers. If they don't eat or drink for three days. That's not good, no. <laughs> That's how serious it was, though. You know? The baby fast, too? Right? The baby fast, too. Yeah. Yeah. 
So um, Esther says, okay, I and my maids also will fast. Uh, and then on the third day, I'll go in to see the king. Now she knows that this is a violation of the law. She might perish. Um, but it's not fatalism. Uh, you know, she's obviously trusting God to make her mission successful. And she's willing to die for what she knows has to be done. She does not know for sure that God will spare her or not. But she knows that she has to do what's right and she's trusting in God here. Um, we have a good example of that in Daniel chapter 3. This is a famous story. Ja Daniel chapter 3, verses 16 through 18. Someone like to read those for us. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego replied to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we do not need to give you an answer concerning this matter. If it be so, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the furnace of blazing fire, and he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But even if he does not, let it be known to you, O king, that we are not going to serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. Okay, so Nebuchadnezzar had set up a huge golden image of himself. Everybody was supposed to bow down and worship it. That violates the law. And so Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego refused to do that. And, and they were um, basically high government officials. They had been put into positions of authority and responsibility. So he's got them there and he's asking them, he said, okay, here's your last chance. Do it or you die. And they said, no, we're not going to do it. You know, we throw us in the fire. We know our God can save us. We don't know if he will or not. But we're still going to do what he commands. Um, so that's a similar situation to what Esther's going through. One of the things that I could see that's a little bit different is with these three men, the law was very clear about what they should and should not do. In Esther's case, it wasn't. So she's, she's on a little, not quite as firm a ground as, you know, what should I do? Plus she remembers what happened to the first king, or queen. Yeah, the first, the first queen got, oh, she's got that. excommunicated, yeah. Right. It's really, it's like the man's law that she's in risk of versus God's law that says, you right. worship him. Right. <laughs> well, she's... Um, in the case of the three men, it was a strict, they were being told to do something that violated God's law. Here she's being asked to do something on behalf of God's people. So it wasn't quite as clear cut. It wasn't quite as clear cut. But um, nonetheless, she has decided that she's going to do it. She, she understood, you know, as Mordecai said, let me go back. End of verse 14. And who knows whether you have not attained royalty for such a time as this. And he tells her, you know, if you don't do it, God will raise up someone somewhere else. You know, someone else will be. And again, 
it's, it's hard to even teach this without mentioning God, but God's not mentioned in the, in the text. Um, even, even that promise, it's not, it's not necessarily that everyone would be saved, that God had promised to preserve a remnant right. that would worship him and carry forth his plan. Right. You have God's promise for that. <laughs> so at the end of the chapter, Mordecai leaves and he goes and gets the people to start praying. So that brings us to chapter 5. Okay, we'll start in chapter 5, verses 1 and 2. So here in this chapter, we see Esther reestablishing contact with King Ahasuerus. Now it came about on the third day that Esther put on her royal robes and stood in the inner court of the king's palace in front of the king's rooms and the king was sitting on his royal throne in the throne room opposite the entrance to the palace. And it happened when the king saw Esther, the queen, standing in the court. She obtained favor in his sight, and the king extended to Esther the golden scepter, which was in his hand. So Esther came near and touched the top of the scepter. Okay, we're, we're in the book of Esther, just starting chapter 5. So... Before we get into the story, I, I want to uh, look at kind of a technical point about how they count days and count time here. So in chapter 4, verse 16, remember they said they were going to not eat or drink for three days, night or day. Now here in chapter 5, verse 1, it says, on the third day she went in to see the king. So, Suppose Mordecai had come to her on a Friday, early in the day. And so she said, we'll start fasting. So Friday is the first day. She would have fasted that night and all day Saturday and that day. And then Sunday now, the third day, she's going in to see the king. Well, that might only be 48 hours, which we would call two days in a sense. So three days, day and night, is the same as the third day in this case. We have that same thing, uh, same sets of phrases concerning Christ's death and resurrection. How long was he in the grave? So let's look at Matthew chapter 12. Matthew chapter 12, and someone like to read verse 40 for us. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. Okay, now let's turn to chapter 16. And someone would like to read verse 21. that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things at the hands of the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and on the third day be raised to life. Okay, so we have exactly the same time period, three days and nights versus third day. So is Jesus contradicting himself, or is that just the way they expressed time? So actually that was, that's just the way they expressed time. 
And we have the exact same time period as another example here in Esther. So, yes. We saw a similar thing when we were billed for a hospital visit. We got there at 11 p.m. at night, and we were billed for the entire day. For the entire day. And then all day Saturday, and you know, we were finished at 6 a.m. Sunday, and it was three days right. of billing. Which, which raises the history of one of our former elders whose wife was pregnant and they drove around in circles in town <laughs> waiting, waiting until after midnight before they checked into the hospital. <laughs> Save a day of hospital bills. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, well she was in on it. She was in on it too. So, you know, it's not a contradiction. That's just the way they t express the time. And you know, it may be, you know, you ask, you know, why the three days and three nights in Esther? Well, maybe God put this here to be another example of the exact same time period so that we could compare it to Christ's time in the grave and see that, no, that's not a contradiction. So, okay, now back to this story. <clears throat> so Esther prepares to go to the king back in Esther chapter 5, verse 1. And it says she puts on her royal robes. The word robes is added here. What, what the Hebrew actually says is she puts on royalty, just plain royalty. Um, and this word for royalty, if you look down at verse 3, at the end of verse 3 it says, even to half the kingdom it shall be given to you. Well, that's the same word, kingdom. So she puts on the word royalty or the word kingdom is the same. And the word's used three times in this verse. Um, where it says palace, that's actually royal house. We have a royal throne. And then we have Esther the queen who is put on royalty. And so this all acknowledges that uh, Ahasuerus is sovereign over his kingdom. So he's there, and he's surrounded by all these trappings of royalty, which includes Esther, and she knows that. Um, <clears throat> you know, she doesn't go to all the trouble of dressing up so that she looks really pretty. She puts on her royal robes, basically to say, I'm part of your kingdom. It shows an act of submission to the king. Um, she acknowledges that he is sovereign over his kingdom and she's part of that kingdom. So the king is sitting on his throne in the throne room and he's facing the entrance. So this is, this is not his private quarters, um, but it's more of the public throne room. She comes, she stands inside the entrance of the court. At this point, she's in violation of the law. Her life is in the balance here. She has just committed a capital offense. So the king would be totally within his rights to say, take her away and execute her. Um, so how does the king react? The NIV says he was pleased with her. And a New American Standard says she obtained favor in his sight. So let's turn back to chapter 2. Someone like to read verses 15 through 17 for us. 
When the turn came for Esther, the daughter of Abihail, the uncle of Mordecai, who had taken her as his own daughter to go into the king, she asked for nothing except what Haggai, the king's eunuch, who had charge of the woman, advised. So Esther was winning favor in the eyes of all who saw her. And when Esther was taken to King Ahasuerus into his royal palace in the tenth month, which is the month of Tebeth, in the seventh year of his reign, the king loved Esther more than all the women. And she won grace and favor in his sight more than all the virgins, so that he set the royal crown on her head and made her king of Tebeth. Okay, so end of verse 15. She finds favor in the eyes of all who saw her. And then 17, she found favor and kindness with him. So she was still his favorite lady. This is like four years later. You know, and after not even being invited to see him for a month, she might have been wondering about that. Um, <clears throat> but she was still his favorite, and she found favorite, favor in his sight. So he extends this golden scepter, and that's um, indicated that he accepts her into his presence. She may continue on into the throne room. And she comes up and she touches the tip of the scepter. Now the scepter was a symbol of the king's authority. So she again, she acknowledges his authority, his sovereignty, by touching the scepter. She also acknowledges his uh, mercy, because he could have put her to death. So in both these cases, we see um, her expressing, again, her humility, her submission to the king. And all through this, when the thing that really made her stand out was not so much physical beauty, because she had been there with hundreds of beautiful women. What really made her stand out was her, her character. <clears throat> so Esther here breaks the law, and she's granted mercy. Back in chapter 21, Vashti disobeyed, and she was excommunicated. Again, why is the difference here? Again, it's character, how she presents herself to the king. Um, we had talked about um, Herodotus and his history, and there was, you know, he talked in his Greek, uh, writing from the Greek terms, he had Asante, if I, if I remember the name right, was the queen uh, who they think is the same as Vashti. And based on what Herodotus wrote, wrote she was not a humble and submissive woman. <laughs> she was uh, feared by many. Uh, so uh, I think Ahasuerus uh, liked Esther a lot more than he liked Vashti. Okay, going on to verse 3. So she approaches the throne, and the king said to her, What is troubling you, Queen Esther, and what is your interest? Even to half the kingdom, <coughs> it will be given to you. <coughs> so, you know, he knows the law. He knows that she risks her life to come in to see him, to talk to him. So he knows it must be something serious, something important. Um, so the, well, like the New American Standard says, What is troubling you? Some of the other versions just say, you know, what is it? You know, what's up? <laughs> Tell me what's on your mind, in a sense. And he addresses her as Queen Esther. Um, again, that shows his respect for her. Now, one of the commentaries suggested that the, he may be thinking, okay, what's, what's she coming about? Is serious? 
is this another assassination plot? Because remember a couple chapters earlier, when Mordecai discovered the plot, Esther is the one who told the king. So he's thinking, okay, she's already told me something that was very serious and important. Maybe it's another assassination plot. You know, we're not told that. So he asks, well, what's your request? And then is followed by this customary, you know, I'll give you up to half the kingdom. Um, that's not to be taken literally. It's hyperbole. It's custom to ask that way. We'll see it at least two or three more times through the book. You know, you can have up to half the kingdom. It's just a nice thing to say. Um, it's a way of the king expressing how um, gracious he is in giving, you know, even though he may not want to give that much. Um, this, however, can be abused. Let's turn to Mark chapter 6. Mark chapter 6. Someone like to read verses 22 through 26. 22 through 26. When the daughter of Herodias herself came in and danced, she pleased Herod and his dinner guests. And the king said to the girl, Ask me for whatever you want, and I will give it to you. And he swore to her, Whatever you ask of me, I will give it to you, up to half my kingdom. She went out and said to her mother, What shall I ask for? And she said, She, the mother, said, The head of John the Baptist. Okay. And is that as far as oh, we can go a couple more verses. Immediately she came in a hurry to the king and asked, saying, I want you to give me at once the head of John the Baptist on a platter. And although the king was very sorry, yet because of his oaths and because of his dinner guests, he was unwilling to refuse her. Okay, so here's five, five centuries later, the kings are still saying the same thing. I'll give you up to half my kingdom. Well, he wasn't expecting this request and he was sorry but he had to do it because he would lose face in front of all his dinner guests earlier verses it was his birthday party he had a lot of important people there and um, yeah probably that too um, but she took advantage of it um, so ask me whatever you wish does she say I want you to spare the Jews no. She invites him to dinner. Let's look at verses 4 and 5, or lunch. And Esther said, If it please the king, may the king and Haman come this day to the banquet that I have prepared for him. And the king said, Bring Haman quickly, that we may do as Esther desires. So the king and Haman came to the banquet which Esther had prepared. Um, so it sounds like, you know, Dinner's ready. <laughs> she comes and asks them to come to lunch. Now remember, she's been fasting for at least two full days. She's been thinking about what am I, how am I going to approach this? What am I going to do when I go into the king? Um, you know, the day that's been chosen to execute the Jews is still at least 10 months off. So it's not like she's, time is a critical element here. Um, 
But she wants to make sure she's got the king in a very agreeable mood. She also wants to catch Haman off guard so that he can't prepare a defense for himself. So those are probably the two main issues that she's looking at. Um, so she asked the king come to the banquet that very day, bring Haman with her, and, and it's probably fairly early in the day because we'll see a number of events that happen before uh, the next day. So it's not like an e a late evening meal. You know, it's almost like a late breakfast or something, breakfast or lunch. Uh, maybe it's a luncheon. And it also uh, sounds like the, the meal's ready. You know, King says, you know, quickly, go get Haman. It's time to eat. Dinner's on the table, let's go eat. Um, now, one of the commentaries uh, notes a very odd coincidence here with four, the four Hebrew words that are translated, let the king come today. The first letter of each of the words are Y-H-W-H. That is God's name. That's what's translated Jehovah or Yahweh, um, which is God's name. And it says some old manuscripts actually have those letters in capitals so that people can see that. You know, it may just be an odd coincidence. I don't think that it necessarily means anything, but I'm sure that uh, we... We have a tendency to look for stuff like that in scriptures and try to make something big out of it. But maybe God put his name in there, maybe not. <laughs> Might just be coincidence. Okay, looking at verses 6 through 8. And as they drank their wine at the banquet, the king said to Esther, What is your petition? For it shall be granted to you. And what is your request? Even up to half the kingdom it shall be done. So Esther answered and said, My petition and my request is... If I have found favor in the sight of the king, and if it please the king to grant my petition and do what I request, may the king and Haman come to the banquet which I shall prepare for them, and tomorrow I will do as the king says. So, does she again, he asked her, you know, you know, what do you want? Up to half the king. And this is real similar to verse 3. Uh, he just repeats... It gives her a chance again to ask. Um, does she plead for the Jews? No. Uh, does she accuse Haman of anything? No, she doesn't. Instead, she invites them back for another banquet the next day. So she delays this another day. Um, and again, if you know, she says, "If I found favor, if I if it pleases the king." You know, it sounds like she really wants to make sure the king's in an agreeable mood here. So why does the delay? And the commentaries, you know, it doesn't tell us. The commentaries always suggest lots of ideas. Um, one is that she just lost her nerve. <laughs> um, one is that maybe she doesn't think the king is quite agreeable enough at the time. Maybe the situation isn't quite right. Maybe she needs to put it off. Um, maybe this is part of her plan in the beginning is to wait a day but she does promise to make her request known at the second banquet you can't make the king wait too long don't try his patience 
know, don't string him out day after day after day. Um, so she commits herself basically to making her actual request on the second banquet. Um, now, whatever the reason is for the delay, uh, one of the things we can know is that this is part of God's plan. And by looking at these intervening events, we will see that God puts in here in this one-day delay. It, we can see a lot about what God is doing. and sees, It reflects, I think, on his, his personality. Okay, so now in verse 9, it changes. We, we start a new subplot. It says, Then Haman went out that day glad and pleased of heart. But when Haman saw Mordecai in the king's gate and that he did not stand up or tremble before him, Haman was filled with anger against Mordecai. So he goes out from the banquet in high spirits. This was a great honor. He had dinner with the queen and king of the empire. Um, but then he runs into Mordecai. <laughs> Mordecai still won't bow. He won't, you know. But one of the things we see, Mordecai is back at the king's gate. You know, remember, he was one of the king's officials. So he's, he's taken off the sackcloth and ashes. So he's now presentable. He's gone back to work, basically. He's done grieving, and he's back to work. But his joy, Haman's joy, basically turns to anger. Um, his whole life revolves around his ego. If he's honored, he's happy. If he's dishonored, he's angry. And we really see this expressed in the next couple of verses. <clears throat> so looking at 10 through 13. Haman controlled himself, however, went to his house and sent for his friends and his wife Zeresh. Then Haman recounted to them the glory of his riches and the number of his sons and every instance where the king had magnified him and how he had promoted him above the princes and servants of the king. Haman also said, even Esther the queen, let no one but me come to the king to the banquet which she had prepared. And tomorrow also I'm invited by her with the king. So he's furious, but he doesn't react and attack Mordecai. He he contains his uh, fury, but he does need to release all this anger and frustration that he feels. So he calls together his wife and his friends. So this is his support group. And then he goes about repairing his damaged ego by telling them how great he is and how he is worthy of great honor. And so he lists them, the you know, glory of his riches. He's wealthy. You, know, you should honor me because I'm wealthy. Uh, the number of his sons. We see later in the book that he had ten sons. You know, you've got a big family of strong, strapping boys, lots of sons. That's worthy of honor. He goes through every instance where the king had honored him. You know, if the king honors you, then obviously everybody else should, right? Uh, his promotion above all the other nobles and officials. We saw that at back at the beginning of chapter 3. The king had seven officials, princes, and Haman was lifted above the other six. So he was, you know, exalted in that promotion. And then he says, you know, I'm only, you know, I alone was invited to this banquet with the king and the queen. 
and she's inviting me back again tomorrow. Um, obviously, the queen thinks highly of them too, right? Yeah, sure. <laughs> she may be, I say she may be humble and submissive, but there's, I don't know if you'd call it treachery. <laughs> What's a nice word for treachery? Devious, devious yeah, it's kind of devious. Uh, and I can see this support group all agreeing with them. Oh, yeah, Heyman, you're, you deserve all this. You know, it's, it's, people surround themselves with yes men to build up their egos. <clears throat> But his pride is, is like a balloon. And Mordecai is the pin. <laughs> Every time he gets close to Mordecai, boom, he pops his balloon. Um, and we also see, it doesn't just say Mordecai. In verse 13, he says, I see Mordecai the Jew. So it also includes the other Jews. Um, as part of this hatred here. Um, so he's exalting himself. Let's look at Daniel again, chapter 4. Chapter 4, Daniel chapter 4 and verse 30. Someone would like to read this for us. This is Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon. Okay, so Nebuchadnezzar is looking on, over Babylon. Boy, aren't I great? This huge city is all mine. I build it. Remember what happens to Mordecai? Or excuse me, to Nebuchadnezzar? He's sent out to pasture for seven years. Yeah. Um, God doesn't put up with that. Um, let's look at Jeremiah chapter 9. Jeremiah chapter 9. Someone would like to read verses 23 and 24. This is what the Lord says. Let not the wise boast of their wisdom, or the strong boast of their strength, or the rich boast of their riches. But let the one who boasts boast about this, that they have the understanding to know me, that I am the Lord, who exercises kindness, justice, and righteousness on earth. For in these I delight, declares the Lord. Okay, if we're going to boast... We boast in the fact that we know God, that we know the Lord, know and understand Him. So we don't boast of our riches or all the things that we have because God's the one who gives them to us. Instead, we boast about knowing Him. Okay, see if I can... Yeah, we're out of time. <laughs> it's like I almost finished the chapter. Yeah, come back next week for the exciting conclusion of the chapter. And we'll see what happens. Okay. Yeah, we have. We have an explanation for that. Yeah. Come back next week and we'll hear the explanation. You know that. Boasting and boasting and knowing God, mm -hmm. and not in our 
accumulations and we've gone to all these funerals and, and that really came up yesterday that the, the thing that passes through death is if you know the Lord. Right. You know, I mean that that relationship with yes. him and if you don't yeah. He, yeah. He who trusts in the Lord will never be ashamed. God will never let us down. Riches, everything else, it's just emptiness. It's gone. Yeah. So. You can lose it like Elon Musk. Yep. He <laughs> said he lost more money than anybody else who right. the record. <laughs> okay. Joe, you want to close in prayer sure. first? Dear Lord, we do thank you for your word, for the way it speaks to us in a personal matter. We thank you that it's a historical part of one time to let us know what you've done in the past, how you watched over, kept track of, protected, and um, was able to keep the namesake of Christ going, of the God's line going through different times. We just thank you for the history of that's all through, the, through that scriptures, following the Israelite people from um, the inception of birth all the way through. Thank you for, the, for that history and examples that's there. But it's also there so that we know that you're the same God yesterday, today, tomorrow, that you'll be there to take care of us also. So Lord, we do pray that we'll be um, obedient to do the things you have for us to do in your word, that we'll um, follow your footsteps, that we'll do the things you want us to do, that we'll live the lives that you want us to be, that we'll honor you and the things we do. Our only purpose on this earth is to glorify you. So we pray, Lord, that we will do that, do the things we do, and that we'll bring glory to you in all we do. Thank you for this hour. Pray for the next hour to come. Lord, this one thing you that we have the opportunity to come and worship you, and that we'll that and then we'll we'll bring glory to you and all we do. Your version of prayer. Amen. Amen.